Welcome back to Mind Matters, folks. You could be doing anything else with your time right now, but instead you've chosen to watch our show and to listen to the one of the best YouTube geek fests out there uh, convey their thoughts on certain things. We enjoy doing it. We appreciate your listening to us. We love feedback. And uh, with that, I'll be telling you a little bit about today's show. Uh, we'll be discussing some of our favorite books, movies, and shows uh, so far that we've either watched or read in 2019. Um, when, a, when a good show or book or novel uh, is written with enough or made with enough insight and uh, artistry, you can say that it reaches a kind of level of literature. So I don't know if we can say that about everything we'll be discussing today, and we'll probably be discussing some nonfiction as well. But, um, but the hope is that uh, these works that we'll be discussing show uh, some amount of insight into human nature, uh, our human condition, and, um, and add to us in a way that, um, that we usually only conceive of when we think of nonfiction books, books that are a little drier and filled with facts and explanations for science or history or psychology or whatever it is we usually discuss here on Mind Matters. So having said that, I'd like to begin by uh, bringing up a show that I've been uh, recently watching that I've had my eye on for quite a while. It's called Babylon Berlin. Uh, it's a German program that originally got released on German TV in 2017. And Babylon Berlin is a story about uh, Germany's Weimar Republic, uh, circa 1929. Uh, so this was the backdrop of uh, all the conditions in Germany, societal, cultural, historical, economic, and political, that gave rise to uh, the Nazis and Hitler coming into power at the time. Um, I had known a little bit about the history of Germany uh, in the Weimar Republic for its famed hyperinflation period and the fact that there was a great deal of uh, liberalism that, uh, that reached hedonistic levels um, in, in the culture and society, especially in Berlin. Um, now, the show centers around an inspector uh, who comes from the city of Cologne, who is kind of brought in or sent to Berlin, uh, we find out, in order to track down some film footage of either a mayor or a top official in Cologne who is being potentially blackmailed with some film uh, of him in a very compromising position. So he's coming to Berlin and joining the Berlin police force, effectively, to, uh, to join forces and, and help them. Um, but really, he's got this kind of ulterior motive in the back of his mind, which is to find out where these films are and destroy them so that he can uh, be a good uh, lackey to the politician that he's uh, loyal to in Cologne. And um, 
in the midst of, of following him, try and track down these, these sex films, you really get to see the really seedy side of Berlin, uh, the cabarets, the prostitution, um, the kind of uh, uh, hedonistic and lax behavior. Along the way, you find out that, that Berlin is uh, subject to all of this kind of um, political intrigue. You have Trotskyists, you have the, uh, the Stalinist uh, party uh, that's got an embassy in Berlin with their own agenda. You have a right-wing uh, secretly forming uh, German militia that doesn't like the way that World War I went down. Um, there is a range of characters who all intersect and, and, and have various uh, moral compasses and political um, goals. Uh, so you have one police detective who is looking for um, a way to bolster the, this right-wing um, German uh, militia group. You have industrialists that are seeking to fund it in secret. Um, you have double-crossing, cross-dressing, uh, cabaret-singing communist uh, women who are uh, just all over the place in, in their intrigues. And, uh, and the show has a real gravity to it. Uh, if you've ever seen the uh, adaptation of Graham Greene's The Third Man with Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton, it's got this grim neo-noir feel to it. Uh, it is a crime thriller, um, but it's also very rich in, uh, in detail. It's one of the most expensive, it's the most expensive uh, television show that's ever been produced in Germany. Um, and the reason is that they, the filmmakers are taking great pains to, um, to recreate uh, streets in Berlin and pay attention to period detail uh, so that you really get a feel for uh, what things look like, what things felt like and sounded like. Um, so that's appreciated as well as the fact that it's just a beautiful, beautifully shot program. But um, my main curiosity and reason for wanting to see this program uh, was because I heard it was excellent. Uh, but mainly to get a greater sense of what that time and place was like. And um, considering, um, considering what we know ultimately grew out of that situation. And uh, in, in watching it, I also thought quite a bit of you know, where we are in the U.S. today, what similarities or differences uh, can be said to ex exist socially, culturally, politically, um, where you have this, uh, this kind of dichotomy of um, uh, left-leaning thinking that's, that's literally taken to the streets, um, as well as uh, what may be considered a totalitarian um, movement towards the right on the part of um, the military, even if it has this kind of liberal veneer to it, like, you know, bring on, bring more women soldiers, or, or we're going to uh, save a country because it's, you know, or, or 
save people because women and children are, are getting killed as opposed to everyone's getting killed. Um, so that's, uh, that's been a, a very kind of um, strong driving um, force in, in my making the time to watch a show because I don't watch many shows uh, or read many novels, uh, but that was the motivation there. Um, the show itself is produced by uh, Tom Twiker, I would just add. Uh, he is a, or was a collaborator with the Wachowski brothers in producing the film Cloud Atlas, if anyone's seen it and liked it. I know a lot of people hated it. Uh, I thought it was terrific. Uh, I think he co-directed or directed one of the segments in the, sh in, the, uh, in the film. So he's actually a creator of um, Babylon Berlin. And uh, what he says about the show is, at the time, people did not realize how absolutely unstable this new construction of society, which the Weimar Republic represented, was. It interested us because the fragility of democracy has been put to the test quite profoundly in recent years. By 1929, new opportunities were rising. Women had more possibilities to take part in society, especially in the labor market, as Berlin became crowded with new thinking, new art, theater, music, and journalistic writing. But he also adds, people tend to forget that it was also a very rough era in German history. There was a lot of poverty, and people who had survived the war were suffering from a great deal of trauma. So um, the central character, uh, Gerald Rath, I think I have his name incorrect, actually. But in any case, he is a, a surviving uh, soldier from World War I, and he's got an addiction to morphine. Um, and there is a, a, a certain um, uh, respect paid to the pain of soldiers in Germany who had survived World War I only to be... Um, dismissed uh, by, the, by a lot of the political class uh, in Germany at the time. Uh, so that's addressed. So in the context of this neo-noir crime thriller um, that, that has a lot of kind of resonance with the types of things that we're, we're seeing in the U.S. today, especially with what we've been reading about with Jeffrey Epstein and, and the fact that he may in fact have kept a lot of film on hand to blackmail uh, people in positions of power. Um, there's, there's that whole kind of theme as well. Uh, so I highly recommend the show. If you don't mind reading subtitles in German, um, if, you're, you know, if you like complex, nuanced uh, explanations of human behavior, uh, and political situations and, and what people do to voice their political agendas into fruition, uh, it's, it's a pretty marvelous program. Mm -hmm. Cool, yeah. I, wanna, I haven't watched that one yet, but <clears throat> it sounds in interesting. I want to check it out. I also mm -hmm. want to watch uh, the Russian show Trotsky. Um, I've heard a lot of good things about that one, but haven't watched it yet. So to get to something that, we, that I actually have watched, well, or read, you mentioned Graham Greene, and uh, just as a kind of um, reference point for like the, the feel of the film, actually, I read a, one of Graham Greene's novels, not one of his spy novels um, this year. I read End of the Affair, mm -hmm. which is one of his serious novels. Like he, 
he he was in like British intelligence, I believe. Like, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's that kind of inspired him to kind of like um, the the James Bond writer. What was his name? Ian yeah, Fleming. Yeah, Ian Fleming. So he he wrote a lot of like spy fiction, and it, I, he called them like um, entertainments or something like that. He had a word for his less serious novels, which are still like critically acclaimed and read today. But he wrote a ton of them. But he also wrote several um, like serious works of fiction that are considered still considered classics, like End of the Affair, Power and the Glory, um, um, Heart of the Heart of the Matter, uh, a few others. But I read End of, End of the Affair, which is about an affair, so kind of like a civil servant type guy and uh, this affair that he's having. And it's just uh, um, it's written in the first person. Um, well, no, it's not. A, it's the it's an affair with like a civil ser servant's wife, and. Um, and the the narrator is a an author, kind of like uh, almost a stand-in for Graham Greene, but you know that only goes so far just because they're novelists. So um, it's told in the first person, and the the narrative kind of goes back and forth a bit. Um, there's portions that are like entire series of chapters that are journal entries that he that he finds, and there's a private investigator that gets involved. And it's actually it's a it's uh, well I'd recommend it without giving too much away. Um, well written. Graham Greene's a, a great writer, and um, like all great novels, you know, it get really gets into the um, like the emotional lives and depths of the characters. Uh, really captures captures moments that um, that kind of like like Jordan Peterson calls them like distillations of human experience in in even just a particular scene. And that's what I find when reading great literature. Like uh, I'm also, I'm currently reading almost finished uh, Crime and Punishment. Where in just a sentence or two, um, it seems like you could even take them out of context. The context probably contributes to the like the power of even just a sentence. But when every once in a while, like reading Dostoevsky or even Graham Greene, there'll just be uh, just a sentence that captures like so much, so much complexity and and um, um, just depth and insight that it it really. Um, it's kind of mind-boggling mind that authors can do that, especially when you a lot of times you you get to know who the author is really like, and they they seem totally like uh, not not as um, not as you'd expect them or imagine them to be in real life, right? It turns out they're pretty much just ordinary people, but when they're writing, they manage to like to really like dig into something and and grasp onto something that is that is really profound, and uh, that's what I find. Uh, is the that's for me the the reason to read literature is to find those bits uh, and and even like the, a whole story will be worth it even just for a few of those moments where where you capture something that's just like really gets to the heart of mm -hmm. of what you know what humans are like what it's like to be human and the 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 conflicts and the just the contradictory emotions that can be encapsulated in just a, a single moment and captured in a in a single sentence. So that was probably the. I haven't read very many novels this year. That was the only. That was the only serious one. I read a couple science fiction novels too. Um, so th for science fiction f fans, these I read two science fiction novels. One, um, they're both by authors that are. Um, well, one isn't very well known, but it is highly regarded by other um, science fiction writers. That's um, R. L. Lafferty. Mm -hmm. uh, I think his name. I think R. L. stands for, or R. A. Lafferty, Raphael Aloysius Lafferty, <laughs> I believe is is his name, and he was a, an American and just a, a great writer. Um, one of Neil Gaiman's favorites, a favorite, like I said, of many science fiction writers and fantasy writers. Um, he's kind of like one of those forgotten um, legends, 
and who who's well regarded by you know writers, but hasn't really caught on among the the reading general reading public. Um, but I read one by him called Past Master, which uh, takes place in this future society in, a, in another world that's been colonized by humans, and uh, some things are going wrong with their society, which is totally like top down controlled. Um, everything is. Um, Everything is is laid out and controlled by like the the kind of governing body, and things aren't going very well. Um, it turns out that there are regions of of their great cities that have kind of like split off, and that there you know there's crime and poverty, but people are streaming towards the crime and poverty ridden areas because there's something about the you know this the the society that they, that they don't like and something that they're yearning for. So the the, the masters decide to. Um, go back in time and bring someone back to be their figurehead to to set things right, and it's Thomas More. Um, and the the funny thing is, that, you know, they bring back Tom, Thomas More, and they're like, "Oh, you know, we loved your book, essentially, <laughs> uh, like Uto Utopia." And he's like, "Well, you guys realize that it was a joke, right? You know, um, I wasn't actually serious. I was pointing out how bad like the utopian ideas are." And they're like, "Well, no, that doesn't matter. You know, just just do your thing." And then he he ends up being like convinced by his own ideas and it goes in a, a, a bunch of crazy different directions because uh, like you don't really read Lafferty's stuff for the, the plot, like the, the narrative, even though it's interesting. Um, you just read it him because of just his sheer inventiveness. He's, he's very strange. Like um, the thing about his, he's most well known for those who know him for his short stories. Mm -hmm. um, and actually just this year, I believe they, you know, one of the big sci-fi publishing companies just released uh, like Best of Ari Lafferty. Um, a bunch of his short stories, each introduced by another um, <clears throat> like sci-fi or fantasy author. And um, the thing about his short stories is that even they are like uncategorizable. Um, some some critic or another author characterized them as Lafferty's. You just you can only call them Lafferty's because they're so off the wall and and crazy. Um, so I, I'd recommend checking out some of his stuff just uh, just if you want to have. Uh, again, there's some insightful stuff in there, but it's just like totally. Unexpected. It's kind, he's kind of like Borges or like Calvino, just t like totally unique. There's no one else like him. And then the other one was uh, by Jack Vance, a little bit more well known. He wrote the like Chronicles of the Dying Earth, I think it was called, like a, a series of novels. I started reading um, just a short novel. It's part one in a, a series. Uh, the series is called The Demon Princes. Um, and uh, what was the first one called? Um, Star. Starman, I think. And um, like, if you read, look at the old covers. It's like you know, old sci-fi '60s covers with the cheesy artwork on the mm -hmm. front. But it's just like the I, the way I describe this one is kind of like hard-boiled space bounty hunter kind of thing going on. Um, and again, like he's Jack Vance is one of uh, George Martin's favorite authors. Um, and one of the, the the thing that most people like about Vance is just that. Even though he's writing science fiction, the the language that he uses and the way that he writes is so rich. Like um, it is like reading like some serious literature, but he's talking about like a space bounty hunter, you know, going around and and being followed by these uh, this like race of super beings that uh, that no one's seen before. And uh, so it's kind of like mysterious. There's this kind of like Dashiell Hammett or you know Chandler vibe going on um, at the same time. So uh, yeah, check out either of those if you if you like sci-fi. Um, and then maybe one more connection, um, yeah. To so you mentioned that this uh, uh, Babylon Ber uh, Babylon Berlin or Berlin Babylon Babylon Berlin is uh, you know the one of the most expensive German productions. Another one is uh, a German show called Dark, also mm -hmm. very expensive. So mm -hmm. 
um, a couple of us here watched uh, season two of that this year. It's actually, you know, that's probably one of my one of the, my favorite shows that I've watched in the last few years. Um, it really makes you think. It's it's yeah. super intricately plotted, and you have to keep track of the same characters in three iterations. So you have to really pay attention. Yeah, basically, the kids as they're like babies or young or young children, like teenagers or adults or like um, elderly people because it, it takes place in in uh three different time periods expands to four maybe five um it has to do with well it starts out kind of like with this twin peaks vibe with uh, a missing kid two missing kids and so it's in this like small german city and um so there's a, a kind of mystery missing person vibe going on in the investigation and slowly it starts getting more like strange and paranormal until it brings in all this like time travel stuff and gets very complex, but it all kind of fits together pretty mm-hmm. intricately. And so, uh, so yeah, if you're into sci-fi, I'd recommend checking that one out too. Well, just two quick comments and then Carolyn, we want to hear from you. Um, one, I can't wait until you finish crime and punishment, Harrison, yeah. one of the all time, most amazing novels ever written, um, had a profound effect on me, uh, when I first read it some time ago. And, um, you know, I mean, the tears, the emotions, the, all, all kinds of things. I, not, not to set up anything and not to spoil anything, mm-hmm. but um, it's so delicious. <laughs> uh, if, if not harrowing, the entire story is, is uh, horribly uh, harrowing and at edge of your seat. Um, a drama. Um, and I just wanted to mention that the uh, Babylon Berlin show is actually based on a series of novels by a German author named Volker Kutcher, which I think is part of what makes it so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the filmmakers had a lot to draw on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and this was, you know, one of the virtues and, and, um, and kind of uh, benefits that Game of Thrones had for a very long time until the horrible last... <laughs> season but we're not going to get into that today i don't think and uh we'll cut them a break and said they did the best they could uh, (laughs) so what about you carolyn well i also did not read very much entertaining stuff i will say that i was a big fan of the philip pullman series his dark materials which is the golden compass the subtle knife and the amber spyglass and i enjoyed those tremendously and the internet had been buzzing for years that he that Pullman was working on additions to that storyline. So this year, a prequel came out called The Book of Dust. And what it does is that it follows uh, Lyra, when we meet her in The Golden Compass, is already eight, running wild like a little animal through Oxford. And the question was, you know, why is she afforded so much license and who her protector is and everything? So the uh, Book of Dust is sort of her antecedents, where she was born, she was hidden away for a while. It's very biblical. Um, Pullman is more or less a Gnostic, so you can find all kinds of religious themes in there. So she's hidden away in a convent. We don't quite know why this little... Basically, peasant boy is dragooned by uh, persons unknown and charged with taking this infant to Oxford, a whole long adventure getting her there. And it is the meeting of somewhat tangential characters in the Golden Compass 
in their beginnings and how they come to have their place in the next story. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Mostly it's a bit tedious in some places, but you know, if you carry through, it's worth it. Um, so that's, that's a good one, especially if you're a Pullman fan. And I hear that there's going to be two more after. So you left Lyra at 15, going back to Oxford. Uh, the next one, I understand she's going to be 21 studying her, uh, Aletheia meter and more adventures after that. So I enjoyed that a lot. And they're making a, well, later this year, I believe they're releasing an HBO adaptation and british made and yeah yeah hbo bbc yes joint production and uh the trailer looks like it's got it looks pretty good it looks good i mean high production value (laughs) and uh james mcavoy yeah and uh he's one of my favorites so i like that and if anyone has seen the uh what what was it like the 2006 golden compass the disastrous pretty horrible so oh th- this promises it. to be a kind of uh, correction uh, <laughs> of of what is probably one of one of the great science fiction fantasy books yes in, i know it's there. it's so brilliant i don't know how these movie makers managed to mess it up but they did um although nicole kidman she was wasted i thought she was brilliant and but they totally miscast lyra and it just went downhill from there it was awful. So fingers crossed that the BBC manages to do a better job. And you couldn't squash a book like that into a two-hour movie. You just couldn't. Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that it's a good 10 episodes? Who series, knows? Yeah. Eight or 10? It'll be around there. Yeah. yeah. Then then you've got the, t- the space to do justice. Yes. And I think it's going to be one, um, one season per book. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. So they're really flushing it out. Because they... they just they butchered it. They just butchered it. Um, the other thing I read for Jollies or actually reread um, was uh, I'm a big Terry Pratchett fan. I just love him. He is so funny, so literate, and yet so wise. But I reread his uh, young adult book or junior reader book, uh, the Tiffany Aching series, which starts out with the We Free Men, and this is. Uh, for all those SJWs, she's a strong heroine, and uh, you follow her from 8 to 18 as she uh, takes her place in the land of Discworld, which is itself. Anybody who knows Discworld will know what I mean. And uh, just the idea of watching her grow from a child and learning to be responsible and I don't know if he's ever read any Gurdjieff, but I find a lot of Gurdjieff in there. This idea of observing yourself from the outside, the idea of service. Like Tiffany makes herself a witch, but a witch in uh, in uh, in Pratchett's world is more like the one who takes responsibility for their village, for their croft, he calls it. So you are the herbalist, you are... <laughs> The headologist, which is his term for psychology. You know, you got to be an expert in headology if you want to be a good witch. Oh, I like that. <laughs> you know, Pratchett is full of wonderful things like that. But her very first act uh, on her road to being a witch is the fact that her little brother is stolen away by fairies. And she doesn't like her little brother that much because she's kind of a pain and he's sticky and dirty and annoying. And But after a while... She notices her parents are super busy. They haven't noticed that he's disappeared, and she knows how he's disappeared. So it's her responsibility. She decides to go and rescue him, and she takes a 
big cast iron pan and goes off to rescue her brother because someone has to. And that's his whole idea. This whole idea through the book is that um, you may not, it may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. This idea that we, it may not be our fault, but we are all responsible for each other. And it's, it's very, very lovely. It's a great series <laughs> and hilarious. Cool. Is that the one that starts uh, with We Free Men? The, yes. Yeah, the Tiffany Aching series. Yeah, I'm showing it on uh, on uh, Goodreads right yeah. now. Looks he, like there's five five volumes. Five books. Yeah. yeah. He has yeah. a lot of fun with the Scots, but uh, Pratchett is another one who I guess like um, Lafferty. Lafferty is that his name? Yeah. Very inventive. Just just he has this really skewed way of looking at the world. The entire disc world is a skewed vision of. Our world, including there's a rumor going around on Discworld, this this crazy, insane notion that there is a round world. <laughs> there's round worlders. They're they're just off their rockers. Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a fun one, and and it's nice to have. Things are so crazy these days. It's nice to have a little airing out for your brain. <laughs> well, um, I don't quite often read westerns uh, but some 30 odd years ago there was a, a miniseries on tv called lonesome dove mm-hmm. that had um robert duvall and tommy lee jones and danny glover and uh, a host of other actors robert urich and uh diane lane oh boy, um, everybody <laughs> yeah it was a very good cast angelica houston and i remember being really impressed by it and uh but not remembering much of it and um, it was time, I don't, know, I don't know exactly what possessed me to get it. I think I had heard, um, again, that that miniseries was based on a novel that had won a Pulitzer, or that Larry McMurtry, the writer, had won a Pulitzer for his, for his body of work. I don't quite remember which. But anyway, I decided to, uh, to pick up and read Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. And um, if, uh, if you haven't heard about it, it's basically just a story of uh, two former um, Texas Rangers, uh, uh, Gus and Call, who have always been partners in their lives. They're in their mid-50s. They, um, they basically break in horses and, uh, in a little town of Lonesome Dove, Texas. So uh, they're used to dealing with bandits. They're highly competent and trained uh, to... Um, to rat out uh, violent Indians, uh, which is what they did for most of their career. And, um, and a friend, uh, a former ranger of theirs, Jake, Jake Spoon, comes out of nowhere one day and, uh, and tells um, Call about Montana and how if you, if you can manage to bring all of these cattle up there, you can claim a whole lot of land and become very rich in a few short years because you have all of these settlers coming into this region of the U.S., which is during the 1870s or so, I think. Uh, in any case, um, you have uh, Call, who is this guy who works 18 hours a day, uh, makes all of his, uh, his hands work 18 hours a day, really hard worker. And then you have Gus, who sits by the porch and drinks whiskey all day long. And yet, they, they have this partnership um, and, and decide, mainly at the behest of Call, that they're going to do this. 
they're going to go into uh, they're going to sneak into Mexico and into parts of Texas, and they're going to steal a bunch of cattle from another cattle thief who's Mexican, <laughs> um, and they're going to take these these three thousand head or so, and they're going to travel for several months and go up to Montana, and um, it is it is one of the richest books uh, that I think I've ever novels that I've ever read. Um, because it gets into what these guys' motivations really are and, and a deep kind of questioning of themselves uh, and, and why they've done what they've done with their lives because they've, they've had a good period of time to look back on uh, their careers as, as Texas Rangers and what they're about to embark on and what they do embark on. And, um, and they're not all that sure. Uh, so there's a great deal of of questioning involved in their personal histories and and uh, and in their interactions with one another. And on the subject of taking personal responsibility, there's one uh, subplot that involves the uh, kidnapping of a of a woman who is peripherally connected to this big drive up north. And um, and uh, Call decides that he's he's going to be the one since he knows her to to rescue her. Uh, which which requires hundreds of miles uh, in the desert of of pursuing this Indian who's kidnapped this woman, and um, so he, you know, he he acts quite heroically, uh, and so I've never been a big fan of the western genre. There are a handful of westerns that I've I've kind of liked watching on film, um, but when it's done really well. There is this element of uh, of the this kind of direct interaction with the environment, mm-hmm. since it's so harsh, with hostiles, whether they be uh, thieves or um, or the military uh, requisitioning anything they want, or Indians who who feel like you know the white man has done them wrong, and um, and you have to make split-second decisions that are quite literally a matter of life and death, not only for yourself, but the people that you're surrounded by. So there are a great number of these situations that are in this novel, Lonesome Dove, that are, uh, that are conveyed um, wonderfully and entertainingly and often hilariously. So it was good to read a book that, that had these, these heavy... Mm-hmm. moments of, of self-reflection, but we're also just the banter between the two or uh, these two main characters and others are just hilarious, um, which, which struck a nice balance. Mm-hmm. The other thing about this uh, is that McMurtry really takes the time to draw some of his female characters quite well. Um, so usually, you know, you think of a, a Western as this patriarchal, you know, genre where the, the, the men are all protagonists, and they usually are, <clears throat> and the women are just these kinds of fixtures in the background. But uh, a large part of this story is the women in these men's lives um, and, and the decisions that they've made uh, concerning their relationships uh, with past uh, romances and current romances and um, 
and just how they're, just how in a very human, again, complicated way, they're compelling themselves to uh, face their decisions and, and their feelings. Um, so Lonesome Dove, Laurie McMurtry, wonderful novel, kind of long, uh, but goes very quickly, very entertaining. Uh, and I think, you know, reaches the levels of, of literature of any novel that I've, that I've read, except perhaps for crime and punishment. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, uh, maybe I'm going to go through some nonfiction books now, get them out of the way. Um, most of my favorite books, nonfiction books that I read this year, we talked about on the show. So like, um, well, actually, this one, uh, Jewish History, Jewish Religion by Israel Shahak. We actually did that one before we started on YouTube, but you can find it in the archives on uh, Sot.net, the, the podcast we did on that one. Um, that along with... Um, a book on Salafi jihadism. I can't remember. I didn't read, write down the, the author's name. But then some other of my favorite nonfiction books from the year, um, Personality Development Through po through Positive Disintegration. That one was by William Tiller. Um, Tillier. That is the, the first really, the first, I'm pretty sure it's the first book, um, like full book, secondary like literature about Dabrowski and his, and his theory in English. So kind of like a milestone, and it kind of goes over all the basics in the theory. It's really it's a long book, and it's uh, really in-depth and extensive. So, I mean, along with reading um, um, Dabrowski in the original, it's a, I think it's a great introduction to his work. We talked about, uh, I think we did a chapter on that one. And um, then on the, like the sub subject of like the intersection of some parapsychology along with um, philosophy, um, of course, we talked about First, first Sight, um, ESP and Parapsychology in Everyday Life by James Carpenter. Did a couple shows on that one. Um, the Idea of the World, a Multidisciplinary Argument for the Mental Nature of Reality by Bernardo Castrip. Did a show or two on Castrip's work. And then the one we did last week, uh, Jot, When Things Disappear and Come Back or Relocate and what it really and Why It Really Happens by Mary Rose Barrington. That was actually one of my favorite books. Um, <laughs> Just uh, just because it was just a you know a joy to read, um, like uh, like you were saying earlier, Ilan about um, you know there's literature and then there's nonfiction which can be like a slog to get through. Every once in a while, you get a nonfiction writer that actually knows how to write and and is entertaining at the same time and and you know knows how to how to put a an, uh, like a well constructed sentence together that isn't just purely functional. Um, so she's a pretty good writer. Um, and then, of course, we've been talking about evolution and um, intelligent design. So uh, probably the best one, well, I, I liked all the books that I read this year on that subject. So Darwin Devolves, The New Science About DNA That Challenges Evolution by Michael Behe. Um, also, The Devil's Delusion. Well, that one was published in 2019, so that's a new book. Then um, one published last year uh, called Heretic, One Scientist's Journey from Darwin to Design by Matty Lizola. Um, that was a, a good one, kind of a little bit. Uh, there's some, some theory and some science, but also behind the scenes, just what it's like for, what it was like for this guy in, um, uh, I can't remember what country he was in, um, Scandinavian country, I believe, but just what the scientific community was like and uh, you know what it's like to be kind of a maverick Mm -hmm. uh, scientist that uh, that has heretical beliefs in the you know the mainstream establishment. Um, so that one was insightful. Um, so does he describe his progression from one school of thought to the from uh, neo Darwinism to 
Is yeah, that, is that kind of how it goes? Yeah, I can't. Rem- I can't remember all the all the details, but um, yeah, there was a progression, um, and and then most. But most of the book is like after the progression. So you know the the people he's talking to and the the conferences that he's trying to set up and the you know the talks that get shut down and uh, um, you know dealing with publishers and uh, you know journal publishers and and just other scientists that are just completely um, unreasonable. <laughs> <I'll just> <laughs> at that. Um, yeah. But then the one other one was uh, by David Berlinski, an older book, uh, several years old, uh, Devil's Del- The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Preemptions. He's a good writer. Like, he's, uh, he's kind of, uh, he's got that f- uh, a flair to his writing that's, uh, you know, not, again, not strictly functional. Uh, Berlinski's mm-hmm. a philosopher and, uh, you know, a really smart guy. Um, can make a joke, too, so that is always worth it. Um, we also talked a little bit about just one section in this book um, by Gordon M. Hahn. We had him on the show, on the old show, Truth Perspective, a year or two ago on a previous book that he'd written. This one came out last year, Ukraine Over the Edge, Russia, the West, and the New Cold War. Um, probably probably the best book on, you know, recent, the, you know, the, re- the last four years in, um, you know, Russia-U.S. relations um, centered around the the you know the Maidan revolution in in um, in Ukraine, but um, the the reason this book is so good is well first of all Han is actually like a, a scholar, um, reads Russian, um, so he can so he cites a lot of you know foreign language sources that aren't available to you know just the 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 average alternative media mm-hmm. like uh, you know commentator in in the West that uh, you know talks a lot but isn't very like uh, rigorous or academic so he's got like so he can go to primary sources. Yeah, primary sources, and and uh, and this is his job. So he he covers this stuff. He knows everything. So the, the, he it's pretty much a history. Like even I think you don't even get until you don't even get to like the current events in uh, in Ukraine. Like well, 2014 until like halfway through the book because it's all a history of like U.S. Ukraine relations and the, the like the region and the dynamics and the geopolitics going back like you know hundreds of years and tracing all of it. Um, up to the present, you know, so through the the Soviet era too, and then through the '90s, um, and then um, the, like the the thing that we talked about on the show was just a short section, just a few pages on um, on the like the the far right ideology among like the like the Azov Battalion and and mm-hmm. IDAR and um, right sector is the, is the main one. So um, yeah, it's worth it. Um, it that one is. It's a big book, like physically, it's a big book, and uh, and it's a long book. So there's a lot of words on each page. It took me a long time to read, but uh, but if you want to like really get into the nitty gritty, all the details, it's all there. And um, uh, yeah, so I recommend that one. Then um, you know, we I don't think we've covered any of these books in particular. I might have read a few quotes from them, but you know, I've I've made reference to Whitehead a lot when we've been doing shows on like philosophy and stuff. So um, read a few books. Um, by Whitehead. Um, the first was A Key to Whitehead's Process and Reality by Donald Sherburn. This is actually, um, it's all Whitehead's writing, but um, like Process and Reality is considered his kind of magnum opus. It's this giant book, um, considered like one of the hardest books to read in philosophy. One of the reasons for that is because it's all over the place. He doesn't follow a, like a linear pro- progression in his uh, in his like exposition. It's pretty much, I think, I think he even writes in the book that um, like in his mind, 
each like each element of his philosophy presupposes all other elements of, of the philosophy. So so it's like you you start with some. He just kind of starts in the middle and then kind of like recursively keeps going back and introducing new concepts. So it all kind of just uh, you know mixes in together because you can't separate. You, like you need to know you know concepts B, C, and D to understand A, but you need to know A, C, and D to understand B. So he just starts with C and then you know progresses from there. So what this guy did. Donald Sherburn, uh, I think he published this back in the 70s. I can't, don't know for sure, but he he took like all these sections in the in the book and just reorganized them in, like topically. So he started with what he thought was the best place to start, arranged everything, and pretty much it's just a copy and paste job from. Mm -hmm. So like you know, here's all the you find all the places where Whitehead's talking about this one concept or process and puts them all together in a way that makes sense, and then you know strings it together in chapters that are kind of. Uh, a bit more coherent than uh, than originally presented, so that was that was useful. Maybe uh, it was Whitehead's sneaky technique to make you read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, well, perhaps. <laughs> and then uh, just I read two short books. Uh, well, one short book by Whitehead, "Function of Reason," just uh, a lecture. I think it was just like two or, two or three lectures that he gave. Um, it's kind of a good in a good introduction if you just want to read something short that uh, that has some great stuff in there. Um, I think that one that's the one that has the quote about um, kind of the absurdity of the kind of scientific worldview of today, which was the scientific, pretty much the scientific worldview of his time, too, when he was writing. Like, I think this was, this was probably back in the, um, when was that one written? Probably, I don't know, 1920s or 30s, somewhere around there. Um, that's the one with the quote about how it would be an interesting, an interesting endeavor to research the... Uh, the like scientists who deny reason, you know, giving their reasons for what they believe in or something like that. So, because um, that's the absurdity of of the the scientific worldview that that can't account for reason and, in essence, denies reason. And then you have the entire scientific establishment, which is based on reason. So it's a, an internal contradiction that goes to the very heart of um, of pretty much all modern science. Um, of course, he's got a, a much wittier and uh, you know eloquent way of putting it than I did in my poor paraphrase. But uh, and then there was a, one. It was kind of the first first book that he wrote that got into his metaphysics that he developed in process and reality, um, science and the modern world, which was kind of a uh, I mentioned it in a show previously, but uh, a kind of history of of the the rise of science and um, kind of all the all the little all the nitty gritty and all the major developments and um, kind of what all the all the the thought streams that went into creating what uh, you know the, the modern scientific worldview. So um, those yeah we talked about most of those. The the one book like one favorite book that I had this year came out this year that we haven't talked about yet is. Um, uh, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. I've got it here by uh, Tom O'Neill. I'll hold it up. So this one just came out recently. Um, it is kind of a, a tour de force. Uh, this guy, you know, was originally just starting to, originally got a job to, to write a, kind of like an anniversary piece for the, for, um, you know, the Manson murders. And... It was just going to be like, um, you know, interviewing a bunch of people who were around the scene at the time and just seeing how, like, how the, how the murders had um, influenced 
like the the, la the the history of of the 20th century and like today. So how things are how things how those events shaped you know how how we live today, um, how it shaped the scene and um, and and these people, and so he th this was like 20 years ago. And he just he'd interview some, interview some people, find out some things, and it just kept like spiraling down all these like all these different rabbit holes that he'd he'd get like lost in these in these deep mysterious like tangents essentially on his on his research journey. But they they kept providing disconnects from from the official story, and right. so he he would just have to chase them down. Mm -hmm. So he never ended up publishing this story. In the, in the magazine, and he kept getting extensions. He kept getting paid, and luckily, he had a really good editor who was like really into into this this research that he was doing. He's like, yeah, okay, yeah, another another year, another several months or whatever. And so he was, he, and so he did that for twenty years. Eventually, that magazine that he was writing the article for, you know, went de went defunct. Um, he got a book deal that didn't work out. You know, he missed his deadline, and so eventually, now 20, 20 years later, he published the book. And there is uh, there is so much to that story that hasn't gotten any like mainstream coverage. Most of the probably most of the most of the things that you think um, are true about that case are probably false. Mm -hmm. So he pretty mm -hmm. much goes goes through and shows you know he shows his process. That's what I liked. One of the things I liked about the book. It's well written and it's written in kind of like a written in a first-person perspective, so he's talking about his investigations, you know, what's, what's happening as he's finding these things out over the years, and, you know, what he learns at one point that he didn't know back then, and so, so every once in a while, you know, uh, a thing comes up where he's interviewing someone and he says, oh, you know, if only I knew what I knew, like, five years later at this point, I would have asked this question, um, because I didn't, but, um, so there's a lot of, like, loose ends, like, he doesn't come to very many firm conclusions just because it's, it's so hard to in this case, but those loose ends are are um, themselves are very uh, suggestive and he found some things that no one had found before and uh, even like in related fields of research so um, we might actually do a show on it uh, another time so I won't go into it in detail but um, just like if you like true crime if you like conspiracy stuff if you like um, like history the like spy uh, spy not thrillers, but uh, you know, nonfiction about spies and things mm -hmm. like that. Like this has all of it, um, and uh, you know, it's all documented. And you know, one of the well, one of the big things um, I'd I'd had a suspicion about uh, Vince Bugliosi, the you know the pros lead prosecutor in the case. Also, uh, um, he, one of the one of the books he wrote. Uh, well, he wrote Helter Skelter. First of all, that was his first big book on mm -hmm. the case. And he was pretty much working on the book as he was doing the trial, you know. So he had oh, his yeah. co-writer in the in the in the courtroom with him, you know, taking notes and you know writing drafts as as this is going on. But you could also look at it as him trying to get ahead of other possible versions of the story. It's like he wanted to be out there. Yeah. Well, and you learn that he was just uh, really a total scumbag. Um, that's the only way to to put it. Um, in his personal life and in his professional life. Like, um, you'll have to read for the details, but he, another book he wrote, I believe, it might, I think it was in the 90s, I can't remember, but he wrote a book on Lee Harvey Oswald and the JFK assassination, mm -hmm. um, just like totally backing the official story. And, <clears throat> and um, you just look at some of, his, some of his connections and the people he was working with. Like, well, like I said, it's one rabbit hole after the other, um, but uh, I, I couldn't put it down. It was a real page turner. So that's probably, that's my, the favorite book that I, 
that I've read so far that we haven't talked about on the show. And then maybe just a few, um, well, few I would just honorable add, mentions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Helter Skelter, the, that book by, uh, is it Bugliosi? Bugliosi. Bugliosi. Uh, so just a quick note. I mean, in the 70s, this was a, the, the seminal book yes. about, about mm-hmm. Charlie Manson. Everybody mm-hmm. bought it. Uh, Until today, a, it's still in print. It's, oh, yeah. It's still in print. It's like, you know, it's like the, the official narrative, as you were uh, suggesting before, Carolyn, and uh, there was a TV uh, series or, or a couple of programs made that, that documentary documentary yeah. depicting the version of, of events that uh, that we've been fed, and um, I'm greatly looking forward to to reading that book, Harrison. It's um, you know it, it's it's like like Dave McGowan's you know series on Laurel Canyon and and how uh, the California music scene in the '60s is not what we think it is. Um, it's it's this looks to be, I didn't get to read this book yet, but it looks to be one of those stories that completely uh, makes you question every, every narrative. Hopefully it gets, gets you to question every, uh, every big mainstream news narrative you've, you've ever heard about an important event of, of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to say that. And uh, Well, uh, <clears throat> I will say, I'll save this. Maybe we can do some movies at the end of the show, but uh, the reason I was inspired to read this one is because um well kevin barrett wrote an article about it that i read and it came out right after <clears throat> or right around the same time as uh Qu- quentin tarantino's new movie once upon a time in hollywood which is about the the tate murders you know tangentially well won't get into any spoilers because carolyn hasn't seen it yet but uh thank you um they're pretty much it follows two fictional characters around but they kind of intersect with the events in in you know 1969 that were going on at the time and uh, so right after that, I got this book and then couldn't put it down. Um, so a few honorable mentions. Um, I read two, you know, I like reading um, like Bible studies stuff, like uh, history and analysis of like the New Testament primarily. Um, and I read two really interesting books. Um, one is by Guy R.G. Price. Not, uh, uh, this was published last year, uh, called Deciphering the Gospels. Um, something I think the full title is something like "Deciphering the Gospels Proves Why Jesus Didn't Exist" or something like that. So uh, Price is a um, um, like a I guess you could call him like an amateur um, historian or or you know researcher. So he's he's not like at any university university or anything. But uh, the book's really the book's got a lot of good stuff in it. Um, um, stuff that's in line with a lot of like mainstream type of research, but, um, you know, from his own perspective, because he, he's a, a mythicist, so he doesn't believe that, uh, that um, Jesus actually existed, um, like any, like, individual, like, that, 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 that the gospel narratives were then based on. Um, he's kind of of the, of, the, of the, you know, conviction that the earliest gospel accounts, like in the Gospel of Mark, which was, you know, generally accepted as the first gospel written, that it was actually, it was written and intended to be fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was... It well, was, doesn't Karata postulate that it was actually a play uh, about Caesar? Yeah, I don't buy that. But, you don't uh, buy that. but it does, he does point out that it does have this sort of um, quality of lines and stage directions mm-hmm. and all that. I mean, it was, I thought it was an interesting idea. Yeah, but either way, it's uh, like, so they both argue mm-hmm. that it was fiction, you know. Well, and um, then that leads to the second book, um, that I just finished a week or two ago, called "Resurrection and Reception in Early Christianity" by Richard C. Miller. Uh, this one was uh, just published in 2014, I think, so several years old. Um, and this is more of a more of an academic work. 
um, kind of in the tradition of uh, Dennis McDonald and um, like Jonathan Z. Smith, if anyone knows any of those authors, and Burton Mack. But um, he's not necessarily a mythicist, but he's got the same, um, he argues the same point um, that, and he's not looking at the, at the Gospels as a whole, but he's limiting to, um, to certain phenomena, like basically the birth narratives of Jesus and the um, resurrection, like ascension narratives. So basically the beginnings and the ends of, of these stories about Jesus. Of course, Mark doesn't have a, a birth narrative. It just starts in medias res, you know, in the middle of things, and um, and then ends without a full um, resurrection narrative. You know, the, the the women go into the tomb, and Jesus is gone, and they run away scared, and that's how the gospel ends, and that nothing happens after that. Pretty mysterious. And then it's only with like Luke and and Matthew, and then John, where you get the the post-resurrection appearances, right, where, you know, Jesus, you know, you know, stick your fingers in my side, see that I'm a real guy, uh, I, I really died, and, you know, going up to heaven and all that. But um, what Miller's arguing is that these, these two are, like, stock, almost cliched, um, like, narrative techniques mm -hmm. that were, that would have been, he argues, recognized as kind of fictional embellishments. Um, it's, like, um, he... What he's basically saying is that if 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 you were to go back, you know, two thousand years and be a be a like a Mediterranean person, you know, living in Anatolia or Turkey, you know, modern Turkey, um, you know, Asia as it was called, or um, or you know, Greece or Macedonia or wherever, and you were to read these, that he, he's arguing that the readers of that time would recognize these as basically like mythic fables, like mm -hmm. and that that were intended to basically. Um, um, to elevate Jesus to um, to a, a level that either equals or surpasses the the other characters in like Mediterranean mythology at the time, mm -hmm. um, using the same stories because who or what are the what are the precursors of these stories? Well, it, um, the most immediate were the was the um, the emperor cults basically. The the Roman emperor was they were divine. After, when they died, they were deified, and then they ascended into heaven, became gods um, to live among the gods in the heavens. And there were post-resurrection appearances where they would, you know, come back, appear to someone on the street or something like. Uh, um, um, and these were these were echoing stories that developed about Romulus, the you know one of the twin founders of Rome, mm -hmm. and um, um, and what happened with Romulus. And these stories too only developed in like the last hundred years before Jesus. Um, before the before you know the kernels of the whatever contributed to the gospel stories, like Romulus ascends to heaven, and then comes back and he's walking on the road, and this guy Julius Proculus sees him, and Romulus in his deified form gives like uh, Romulus's he uh, call like his good news essentially his gospel to uh, you know the, about the the glory of Rome and you know go forth and um, and Rome will you know will be the you know the greatest ever, and through our military might, and you know whatever. But the mm -hmm. the the storyline is the same. There mm -hmm. and and these elements are, um, they were new to Roman mythology at the time and Roman religion, but they were all over Greek religion. So there were all kinds of like when um, there were all kinds of gods, like demigods. First of all, this gets back to the birth narrative. So there were demigods who were the the product of uh, a god and like an earthly woman, uh, a mortal woman who created these demigods, and then a lot of these demigods, but a lot of these other people, if they lived a, a life of sufficient virtue or whatever qualities, 
um, upon upon their death, their body would disappear. Um, it might be burned. It might be. It might disappear in a river. It might be struck down by one of Zeus's, Zeus's thunderbolts. But the body would disappear. And even and so just. In, in, all, in a lot of these tales, in a lot of these fables, just the missing body would be a sign, um, a hint to the reader that this person had been translated up to the heavens. They were, now, they were now divine. They were now living up with the gods. Because when everyone else died, they didn't go up with the gods. They went down into the underworld, into Hades, and, uh, and lived as shades, as immaterial shades. So there was like, uh, that was the common belief. When, when people died, they went underground as immaterial spirits. And often is like undifferentiated spirits, so you wouldn't you wouldn't even necessarily be able to like uh, have an individuality in the afterlife. Even that kind of took a while to develop. But um, this new idea came primarily with um, by through the development of these stories about Romulus that were associated with Julius Caesar, who was the first like contemporary in that whole scene for, to 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 actually have that happen to him. Not in not in a story about the you know the past the the distant past the mythic mm -hmm. past but in the present. So Julius Caesar um, was assassinated, and then um, uh, you know, Augustus Octavian at the time saw you know, the comet during the, the games a few months after Caesar died, and that comet was then interpreted as, as the soul of, of Julius Caesar mm -hmm. ascended to heaven living with the gods. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about now being a god was that you had a, a, a divine body. So you weren't a shade, you were a divine body. And that's, so that's just getting back to what Miller writes. That's, so he actually argues, he goes further than, um, than Price. Price argues that basically um, Mark and maybe Luke both were kind of writing fiction um, using other, um, something called a literary mimesis. So where you take um, a previous work and then kind of write your own work, kind of stealing the narrative a bit. Mm -hmm. This is what Virgil did in the Aeneid for the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. Basically taking a Greek classic and turning it into a Roman classic by ripping it off, essentially, but doing it in a very <laughs> creative way, creating a new but classic. Mimesis just sounds so more cultured. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so this is, so uh, Price argues that Mark and Luke did this, um, essentially, mm -hmm. but then by Matthew and maybe John, that they'd kind of lost the plot and mistook the previous fictions for for like historic, historical accounts. And so there's, a, there's this whole thing in, in New Testament studies about the, you know, the body. Like why did Jesus show his body to like doubting Thomas and, and to, to prove that he was body? And there's one idea is that you know, there were the, the mythicists, the people that thought that, uh, that Jesus wasn't a real man, but more of a, a supernatural being. And then there were those that thought he was a real person. Um, and this was a, a way of injecting some historical like verisimilitude, like verisimilitude to, to show that, oh, Jesus was real. And look, he had a real body because, because this is what he showed to, to his disciples. But um, Miller goes even a bit further and kind of, in my opinion, pretty much demolishes those series and shows that... Um, that he argues that all four of the gospel writers knew what they were doing. It's not like like mm. uh, Matthew and John, I think, were like kind of lost the plot and and thought, oh well, we're, well, we're actually writing fiction. Like he argues that 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 um, that scene, like the the scenes for the doubting disciples to show Jesus's mm. body, was to wasn't to show that um, um, you know wasn't to to counter uh, um, like a heretical belief that Jesus was a spirit. But to show that Jesus was uh, a god, mm -hmm. that he had a divine body, you know, one that could teleport and you know transform itself, because mm -hmm. um, these were features of the gods. Um, 
So he had a, a, it was to show that he had a heavenly body, that he wasn't just a shade in the underworld. So he wasn't just some dead dude that, that was like showing up as an apparition. Mm -hmm. um, he wasn't a human that had been, had been brought back to life like Lazarus in, in John, I think. Mm -hmm. um, he was actually um, uh, like, uh, he, he had a heavenly body now. And um, so I'll be talking about that a bit more in some uh, subsequent segments because there's a it ties in with a few other researchers and, and books that they've written over the last few years. So um, yeah, I've read a bunch more, but I think those are the only ones really worth talking about. Um, oh, and uh, just a, another honorable mention, Coddling of the American Mind, which we talked about on the show. Mm -hmm. So that was a really good one by uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. Well, I just want to make a recommend for an oldie but a goodie if you have not read it, which is Evolution 2.0, mm -hmm. even though you've probably already talked about it and everything. But I enjoyed it. Having slogged through Schilling's The Fifth Option, which is a slog. I mean, this guy is so desperate to prove his theory that, that DNA is code, that there are pages and pages and pages of statistics and comparative analysis and all that other stuff. And it's, it's hard. But Evolution 2.0 is by Perry Marshall, and it's like reading an infomercial for intelligent, de intelligent design. I could, I could, hear, could hear the pitch in my head, but he makes the same material because he is also uh, a coder. Much more accessible. Uh, he builds a very good case. Uh, and, and at the end of the chapter, there's literally, uh, but wait, there's more. And it, it just makes it so much fun. And of, of all the evolution books that, that I read, that was the one that I had the most fun reading. Mm -hmm. And it provides a pretty good grounding because then you can go from there to Behe's books, which I also enjoyed. But his books were written to prove his thesis to his fellow academics, even though he makes them entertaining. But if you have that one, then then all the others become more accessible. So I just recommend that one for the for the knowledge and for the entertainment value. I like that one too yeah. a lot. And it was the first one I'd read on the yeah. subject of intelligent design. Yeah. And, and he uh, loves his subject. He loves it. He does. <laughs> and and he really wants you to know what he knows. Mm -hmm. he, there's a real kind of a an emotional um, uh, thrust behind it. Yep. You know, th this is wonderful. You yep. know, look at look at the implications behind this. And he's quite honest about his um, his religious background yes. and and his belief in God and uh, and Christianity in his case. Mm -hmm. um, although I don't think you need to be Christian per se in order to uh, embrace some of the ideas of intelligent design. No. And um, he just wants you to understand what are the main core reasons why neo-darwinism is bunk yeah so uh, i agree with you i think it's a great first mm -hmm. uh book right and, and on that subject carolyn um i'm currently i haven't finished it yet i'm reading uh, darwinian fairy tales by david stove <laughs> which is uh which is um entertaining and because what he does is um he goes back to some of the original ideas mm -hmm. um that informed uh, Darwin's um, ideas and uh, and and breaks them down mm -hmm. and um, gets into food scarcity and and uh, oh all of Hobbes yeah yes mm -hmm. so what what he's able to do is is deconstruct those foundational 
ideas that um, that made Darwinism the 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 theory of its day and the theory you know up until now for still many scientists and thinkers and mm -hmm. and people who don't even realize they think about reality and evolution in the way they do mm -hmm. precisely because these ideas have been uh, propagated so heavily yeah. uh, and and you know there's this you're not allowed to question it. Mm -hmm. So that's a very entertaining um, book in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, some years ago, I had read a, a number of books on Caesar when it, when it became um, uh, known to a few of us that, um, th that uh, the life of Jesus Christ and, and the Jesus Christ story was uh, quite probably inspired by or based upon the life of Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. um, but I recently came back to one book that I hadn't read that I'm uh, enjoying a lot. And this is The Education of Julius Caesar by, I think it's Arthur Kahn. Okay. And um, it's not a novelization uh, exactly, um, or at all, really. It is, it is a kind of a, a nonfiction book. Um, but it is, uh, it's, it's rich and juicy with, with, the, um, mm -hmm. uh, with what you'd come to expect from a novel. Mm -hmm. about a life of someone in history. And um, he took a lot of time to flesh out the people around him. Yes. Especially his mother, his uncles, other people who, who had a lot of influence as he grew up, choosing his teachers. Um, no, that, that was really nice because it, it feels like a novel, even though it isn't a novel. And that makes the information very um, assimilable. Yeah. Know, so That's what I'm finding as well. Um, and I, I would just add, um, you know, why is this important? Uh, well, if you consider the, the idea or probability that, uh, that the whole Christ mythos, religion, uh, Christianity was, was based on this man's life and his accomplishments, mm -hmm. uh, it would seem important to, to look at the, um, the types of, uh, things he was up against he he wasn't only a um, a, a top-notch military general and leader. Uh, he was a he was a kind of a spiritual force for uh, not killing mm -hmm. uh, in, in the way that um, in the way that carnage and and the wars at the time in Imperial Rome uh, were known for. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, really gave me a. a a background on um, the, the the types of the extent to which the, the treachery and the um, and how how things played out politically in Rome at the time, mm -hmm. uh, where you know one day you, you'd have uh, you'd have one guy leading you know the consulship, and the next day a, a, another general would come back to town who had been. You know, Sulla would would have been you know cast off out of Rome and and come back, and then and then there'd be all this retribution and blood in the streets of mm -hmm. of thousands of people, including mm -hmm. including consuls and senators and and praetors and all of these, you know, you know this this was what civil war looked like, mm -hmm. and it was it was a time in which Caesar lived in and and battled in and thrived in, and this was just an excellent way to uh, to experience that that whole time and place. And the last thing uh, I just wanted to mention in terms of novels is something I've been making my way through quite slowly. 
Uh, it's a series of volumes called Life Beyond the Veil, um, which was mm. written or, um, or automatically written by a priest named, I think it's George Owen. And uh, this is something I hope to uh, be discussing in a future show here because um, what it is basically is a, uh, is a kind of description of the afterlife uh, or what it may be like. And uh, for those materialists uh, out there, um, you know, you can turn off the video for the next two minutes. Uh, <laughs> but if, if you've ever given thought to why um, or how there may be a, an afterlife or another kind of level to reality after we die, if there is a, a soul or a place that a, an essential part of us goes to and continues to exist in, uh, this is a wonderful uh, look at what that place is like, mm -hmm. uh, what people are learning and doing there, mm -hmm. um, and what their, um, what their reason for being is. And that is in part to serve humanity in whatever ways they can and, and to, um, to affirm a, a kind of a, a, a value system. Um, so I look forward to talking about that in the future. And, uh, I don't know if you guys want to discuss any films at this point or add to that. Uh, before we get to films, uh, just a couple things, um, I want to talk about first, a book that I have not finished yet, but which we will probably talk about and which will end up being another one of my favorites from the year is, uh, this one by E.J. Michael Witzel, The Origins of the World's Mythologies. This was published back in... Uh, 2012, um, a kind of another 20-plus year project. Um, Witzel argues that mythologies, world mythologies, can be traced um, back historically in the same manner that um, languages have, like in linguistics. So um, I think the like the study, um, the, like the study of languages as it's done today, has been has like a two, three hundred year history. Um, and I think, I believe, started with um, like the Indo-European languages. So noticing the similarities between languages and then uh, noticing the, like basically the mutation rules, like to borrow from genetics. So how, how um, phonemes will change, sounds will change in a, in a, uh, a regular manner, like um, in similar ways. Mm -hmm. And by looking at the similarities between languages, you can see, okay, well, these two languages are related. You know, they probably branched off there. And then those ones are related, and those probably branched up off there. And all these languages together, you know, f had one um, one origin, basically a Proto-Indo-European. And um, there are even some linguists that think you can go even further back, and you can find a Nostratic language that has different language families altogether, and you can mm -hmm. hypothetically trace it back to, um, you know, a, 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 an original one one language from which all the, all others uh, derived that gets pretty tricky because um, you know your evidence gets scarcer and scarcer the the mm -hmm. further back you go hypothetically but he's arguing um, that you can do the same thing with mythologies entire mythologies and so he's uh, he makes a really good case so far and he's very rigorous very you know academic uh, to the point where some parts of the book might be a bit dry and tedious but yes. uh, but, <laughs> but he is again making a case to Excuse me. He's making a case to his peers, not to the rest of us, but we'll hold with him. But but the idea that that you can take entire corpuses of myths 
to compare to other myths. And the fact that nobody ever thought of doing that is kind of interesting. Because mm -hmm. they're like he goes through the various different uh, theories and explanations for why certain myths are similar, like uh, mm -hmm. you know from vastly different cultures. Um, and well, just a couple examples. Like one is the kind of archetypal theory that there's just a reservoir of of images and and symbols and um, you know little fragments of myth that will just that every human just has access to mm -hmm. um, in the subconscious, and that explains it. But then he you know he points out that well, first of all, not all symbols are present in all mythologies. Um, so why do some have them and some and others don't? And, um, and even and after that, why do several very big world mythologies have the same have the same storyline? That's the that's mm -hmm. the big feature of what he identified is that, um, like in the northern hemisphere, well, pretty much all of like North America and South America, and then all of what he calls Laurasia, like Eurasia, and uh, well, the Laurentia. Yeah, pretty much Eurasia. So, um, like Europe and Asia, they all have mythologies that for follow a storyline that has like uh, something like 12, 12 uh, chapters in which similar things happen. Like very similar. They not only are they do they have the same elements, but they follow the same sequence, and um, which to him suggests that they that they all basically just like languages develop together. So you had you might have two closely related mythologies that differ in slight details, and so you can hypothesize a a precursor to that that um, that didn't have those differences, but that had similarities in that too, you know, etc. Down these branches till you get one origin of this storyline that spread throughout all of Eurasia, and the the kind of test for this that's the chapter I'm on right now is that the mythologies of um, of like Sub-Saharan Africa and the Australian Aborigines and uh, like the Papuans and like Andamanese, all of these kind of um, cultures that are on like the you know in the southern southern hemisphere like what he what uh he calls it like gondwana land so mm -hmm. like the sahul um continent and like uh you know australia back when the the water level was lower so that there was more connectivity in the in in those areas um and uh you know less water less islands and fewer islands um that there so there are these basically two mythologies like there's one in the south and one in the north, and they're mm -hmm. vastly different. They have some similarities, um, but that can be attributed to, to borrowing. But there's a new mythology in the in the in the north that arises like something like forty thousand years ago that didn't influence the the south, but mm -hmm. that influenced all of the mythologies in the in the northern regions, and then of mm -hmm. course across the Bering Strait to North America and South America. And um, so very interesting um, to to even just to think that you can you know excavate mythology to go back in time and mm -hmm. see what um, what people might have believed um, and what their myths might have been before um, before there was writing you know because this is going back 40,000 years as opposed to like the 5,000 years that we have writing mm -hmm. and um, and even like a lot of mythologies were only written down in the last 200 years of course the, like so the ones that were written down um, are older so you've got you know you've got all kinds of Sumerian and Semitic and Greek mm -hmm. and Greek and Roman and even J Japanese and Chinese but then you've got all kinds of uh, mythologies from um, cultures that weren't literate at these times that have only been passed down orally and even then in those you can find the like the similarities um, mm -hmm. and uh, and trace them so it's a it's a giant project like he basically just started it here but um, at least Hypothetically, it could lead to kind of a, a revolution in the way that uh, mythologies are studied, and then tie that into uh, a third area, 
which is the 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 recent and this is like a kind of a historically brand new science the 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 study of ancient DNA. So one of my favorite books from last year was um, David Reich's Who We Are and How We Got Here. Um, he is one of the pioneers in the study of ancient DNA. So you know they're the guys. I, I, I'm not sure if they're the guys that originally um, like discovered like Denisovan DNA um, in like the in Southeast Asia and basically another archaic hominid population, human population that interbred with humanity in the way that the like the the Europeans did um, with Neanderthals. But um, there, so that it is now possible to to uh, such a, a greater degree than it was before to trace back human migrations and um, and cultures like meeting and interacting and you know interbreeding and. And uh, like through back through the thousands of years of history, and so that can be theoretically again aligned up with mm -hmm. the uh, with the mythologies and how mythologies met and interbred and and created new mythologies. Um, so very interesting, um, very interesting developments, and uh, hopefully that hopefully like hopefully the mythology gets introduced too, um, you know, along with the linguistics and the genes because. Uh, um, you can well. It's just uh, it's it's cool to think about how, where that where the development of those sciences might go because, like Reich points out, the with the development of this archaic DNA thing, like it's uh, it's proceeding exponentially. So you know, in, in at one year, like ten years ago or something, there were something like three ancient ancient genomes that were sequenced, and the next year there were eight, and then there were twenty, and now there's like thousands every year. Yeah, and well, um, they're getting better at, at extracting. Yeah. Not just it used to be you had to find a pristine tooth. Now you can take the flange of a finger. You can take, mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot more skill at sourcing. So yep. you have a lot more samples to and deal with. And it's cheaper too. Like I think it's mm -hmm. something like it's millions of times cheaper than it used to be with the development of these new technologies. So, uh, so it's now affordable too. You can just, you can sample all these, all the ancient genomes you want. And so they've got, they've got, you know, skeletons, you know, in all of these periods of history all over the world, uh, some better represented than others, of course, but that's, uh, that's being reconciled, and uh, they're digging up those bones and crushing them up and getting that DNA out of them, which is really cool. Okay, movies? Want to do a, a few movies before we end I only for the see day? pop movies. I don't have anything serious. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. Did, did one strike you? Uh... Oh, I just, I just really... Because they're pop movies, they've all fallen out of my head, right? Yeah, you don't remember them. No, I did, I did enjoy the Avengers series. And, uh, well, if you want to branch out movies and TV shows, uh, we were watching Legion, which is a Marvel series, kind of. He's sort of him himself. But if you want... How many how many episodes did it end up being? Sixteen, 20, three, three 27. seasons, twenty-seven seasons of well, twenty-seven episodes. Episodes of progressive mind bendiness. Uh, totally recommend it. Just just realize that as you go along, it's going to get weirder and weirder and weirder until you say, "What did I just watch?" But you want to see the next episode just to see where it goes. Um, very inventive, very creative. Uh, it's on um, Netflix. Ne is, mm, no, no. Oh, no, it's like Stars or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you've got to have a, a, a streaming service, but it's called Legion. Oh, who's the guy who stars in it? His name? It's the I can't remember his name, but it's the cousin from um, 
what's the British show with uh, the the <laughs> the mansion with the the people and it's and like it's kind of like upstairs downstairs. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Oh, um, down, down, Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey. Okay, so I never saw that, that, so guy. I don't know. It's <laughs> that guy, and that guy, he's he's brilliant in this role. So, um, like I said, if if your oh, taste runs to the odd and bizarre, totally recommend it. <laughs> well, uh, some time ago, a few of us watched uh, Haunting of Hill House. Oh, yeah, uh, which was based on a novel. Um, I'm not sure if it's. That's his, his same title. It's the same title. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had seen the original film by Robert Wise, which was like early 1960s, um, I think with Claire Bloom, and it was quite scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a reworking of it, right. of, that, of that novel and the film. I think there were, there were um, maybe eight, eight or ten or so episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful, scary but even more than that, really kind of um, really touching because of the number of uh, uh, family dynamics yeah. involved with with uh, the brothers and sisters who had experienced this this ghost trauma as children and and were uh, now yeah. grown up and and kind of revisiting those experiences with the ghosts and and coming to terms with each in their own way how they. Uh, dealt with uh, this this very weird tragic event that happened, yeah. uh, and even to the point of questioning whether it actually did happen. Yes, and qu- each questioning the other, the one who's the ones who believed completely that it was real, and the ones that just went no, not really. Um, so the, just to watch them work all that out. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so th- this this series had horror, it had uh, family drama. It had suspense. Um, it had some amount of humor. Uh, everything was well executed and um, and uh, quite affecting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that also has a, a high recommendation. Haunting of Hill House, and I think that was Netflix. Yeah, that was. I'll second that one. <laughs> uh, just back to Legion. The the author, the actor is Dan Stevens. Um, who was in Downton Abbey. But it also has, um, in just a few seasons, or a few uh, episodes, um, Harry Lloyd, who was uh, Viserys, um, Viserys Targaryen in Game of Thrones, but also um, one of the main characters in another show that I forgot to mention that I really like, Counterpart. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, which is like, uh, again, uh, a bit sci-fi. Um, parallel bit, worlds. Yeah, parallel worlds. But it's it's pretty much like a geopolitical like spy spy drama um which is uh, uh well just highly recommended it's uh it's got a lot of like um a lot of politics a lot of kind of like um kind of scheming and and uh and mystery and um uh, intrigue intrigues the best one so yeah i'd recommend and the lead that actor one. in that one was fantastic too yeah yeah, yeah uh oh th- that was the guy in uh I'm terrible with names. <laughs> the guy. Um, that guy. You'll recognize him. Just wait. Let me let me find out who that was. He's bald. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, he was a guy in the Sorry. movie about the jazz drummer, and he was oh, the, the really yeah. mean... Whiplash. Uh, yeah, Whiplash. He was in, in Whiplash. He's been in tons of stuff, but... Yeah. No, he's a terrific actor. That also had a wonderful cast and really kept you kept you involved. So, contact. Or no, um, counterpart. Counterpart, yeah. Yes. 
and uh, maybe okay, a few of my a few of my favorite movies. Um, just for for uh, if you like kids movies, <laughs> um, I really like Coco. Yes. Yeah. The the I believe it was a Pixar one um, about the you know t- on the theme of the afterlife, um, like Life Beyond the Veil. This one's about a a little Mexican kid who who likes music, but is banned from playing music in his household because of a uh, a family a family conflict. Um, in the past, so music is banned, but he really wants to be a musician, and he ends up going to um, the afterlife. Another tearjerker, folks. Yeah, be yeah. warned. Yeah, it's a very cute movie as well. Um, and an old movie I hadn't seen before. I'll just mention it because, uh, well, I guess it's underrated. Uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, the first Star Trek movie, mm-hmm. really good, actually. Um, yeah, enjoyed that one. But um, I, I liked Haunting of Hill House. There was a horror movie. So if you like horror movies, then I'm going to make this recommendation. If you don't like horror movies, then don't see it because um, it's very scary. And um, you might not sleep for a few nights. But that one, I believe it came out last year. It's called Hereditary. And all I'll say about Hereditary is that if you appreciate scary movies every once in a while, then that one is scary. And uh, you'll enjoy it. Now it's you're very, on your own. It's very well done. <laughs> very creepy. Um, not there are a couple gory scenes. Um, more disturbing just for just because of the general creepiness of the atmosphere. It's not like one of those gory horror movies that are just um, you know people getting you know ripped up and tortured for you know whatever reason. Um, just because I guess some people like watching that. It's a uh, um, it's not like that. It's more of a psychological thriller with just a little bit of, um, little bit of violence thrown in there, just because it's a modern horror movie. But uh, yeah, scary. And uh, seri- well, and for sci-fi, Upgrade I also liked. Uh, did you guys see Upgrade? Well, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So if you like yeah. sci-fi, that one, that one was. A oh, that surprise. had some very twisty parts to it. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. one was good. I wasn't expecting that one. And then kind of more of a serious movie. Um, 12, um, which is a Russian movie, an adaptation of the play um, on which 12 Angry Men was based. Uh, that I believe 12 Angry Men, came, did it come out in the 50s, maybe 60s? Um, um, 50s. Black and white film, great, yeah. great movie. I haven't seen it in years, but this one is basically like a Russian adaptation, so it's just, it was made just a few years ago. Um, so yeah, Wonderful. Yeah, it's the, so the same same basic plot, you know, um, uh, 12 jurors getting together to decide the fate of, uh, you know, a young man accused of murder. And uh, it's just all of them talking to each other as, they, as they're deciding the fate of this young man. And uh, really well done, really well acted. And uh, well, I've uh, never actually seen the original 12 Angry Men, but what, what I found fascinating about, about that film, and yes, highly recommended, was it sort of provided... A cross section of Russian society, I guess, would have been in the '90s, maybe early to you know mid 2000s, just because there are there are references to you know your sleazy U.S. oligarchical sellout. There's a guy who's a taxi driver who had, you know, had a fortune and lost it. Um, angry young people, angry old people. Uh, so it, it's really an interesting, I don't know how accurate, but uh, as an illustration of, of Russian society after they had been through this tumultuous, horrible 10 years uh, and the effect it had on them, is, 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 it was quite something. 
Well, maybe one last thing before we uh, end for today, because it's been a long show. Um, this is the coming soon section. So these are a few <laughs> books um, that have either just come out that we haven't read yet or that are coming out later this year that I think are going to be worthwhile. Um, first one, this one already came out in April, but I haven't read it yet. Uh, it's Graham Hancock's new book, uh, America Before. So um, basically, like, uh, like, you know, Graham Hancock is into kind of ancient history stuff and ancient mysteries and possible ancient civilizations and, and things like that. And so this is about, like, the hidden history of America. So like, uh, I'm guessing, like, uh, you know, civilizations that aren't really well known um, and things that were going on that uh, aren't really mainstream. That one looks pretty interesting. Um, in October, there's a book coming out uh, by Bob Lazar and George Knapp called Dreamland, an autobiography. So this is Bob Lazar's autobiography, um, which should be very uh, interesting and uh, entertaining. Uh, if, you saw, if you saw either the documentary um, um, that came out last year on Bob Lazar or uh, like his appearance on uh, Joe Rogan, if you're into that sort of, that sort of thing, very interesting. Um, in October, a book is coming out by Henning Melber. Uh, we had Henning on our show several years ago, maybe three or four years ago, to talk about uh, the assassination of Dag Hammarskjöld. So he's got a book coming out, uh, Dag Hammarskjöld, the United Nations, and the Decolonization of Africa. So I'm looking forward to that one also coming out in October. And then um, in December, really looking forward to this one, um, it's going to be expensive. It's going to. It's published by like I don't know Oxford University Press or something. It's an academic book, but it's by a guy named Josh, Joseph Aziz. It's called Gurdjieff: Mysticism, Contemplation, and Exercises. This is going to be the first, um, either academic or not, but uh, first um, book specifically on Gurdjieff's um, contemplative exercises. The more kind of like not necessarily mystical, but um, um, the kind of the elements of meditation and um, like mind training that he that he did, which which have which a lot of them have remained secret for the past seventy years, mm -hmm. because um, whenever Gurdjieff um, would take on students, um, he'd give them exercises to do, like contemplative exercises and exercises in will and like uh, you know sensing and and um, all kinds of stuff that they weren't allowed to tell anyone. So the the Gurdjieff community has kept like even some of the basic um, exercises tightly guarded and secret. So um, unless you join a Gurdjieff group, you won't learn a lot of these techniques. Well, um, some of them have been published um, in various places over the years, but um, Aziz has kind of like put them all together and then placed them into uh, like the context of the different periods in Gurdjieff's life and uh, the, like the, the different, um, different approaches he took at different points in his life to uh, you know, teaching his, his philosophy and his practice. So that one, uh, I'm really looking forward to that one. It should be very eye-opening and uh, a lot of new stuff in there that hasn't been, new secrets revealed, <laughs> haven't been public. Well, thanks for those previews, Harrison. Yeah. And uh, this, is, this is a fun show to do. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we look forward to doing many more and having a lot of fun and uh, bringing out the, uh, the ideas that most um, fascinate us about uh, about life and uh, and science and psychology and philosophy and the human condition and all those things that would be connected to that. Um, please hit uh, like, smash subscribe. Let us know you're out there. Uh, we appreciate you listening. And um, we look forward to talking again next week. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.